we've been, well, we've been on a journey. We've called it a journey to Pentecost, a transition from Easter to next week when we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church. Just as we're celebrating the graduates and the fact that they are on a journey and this is a moment in which they can celebrate and look back and now with anticipation look forward or even trepidation look forward, we too must acknowledge that in our day-to-day lives, in following Jesus, we are on a journey. We have not, any one of us, arrived. We are on a journey. And so the question is, where are we going? What needs to happen? What do we need to do? And so we've been using this journey to Pentecost to look at some lesser-known characters in the New Testament. Some people we simply might not know or might not remember, looking at them to see if maybe there's something in one of them that inspires or encourages us where we are in our life walk before God. Now, part of that is because when we look at the Peter and the James and the John, and the other major names, we we find ourselves comparing ourselves to someone who's just really, they feel beyond us. And so we're looking at some of these lesser known characters so that maybe we can, maybe we can relate. The challenge of today though is, as we look at our lesser known characters, We're going to look at three people who were in positions of influence. They had influence. Now, I want you to think for a moment. There are people in your lives who have influenced you. There are people that have been at those right markers along the way that because of where they were positioned, they had an ability to speak into your life. Or they took an action that impacted your life. That's the kind of people we're talking about today. These three people, two of which are kind of a lead into the third, these three people have all been influenced by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus changes lives. He's just not another commodity to put on our plate of things to have in life. He changes our lives. And that's risky. That changes the trajectory of our life. The first person is someone we actually read his name in a a more recent reading, and he came to us by our looking at the church in Antioch, this church that develops because there's a persecution that takes place in Jerusalem, and the early Jews that were followers of Christ, they were followers of the way, they, they ran off. They went, some of them, hundreds of miles away, and 
And so what happens is there's this church that forms in Antioch, a church that even we remember that the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas up to to check out what's going on up there. And when Barnabas found the believers, that even non-Jews were coming to believe, he quickly went and sought out Paul and brought him back to be a teacher. And basically an academy, a teaching center began within that church. This is the church where for the first time the name Christian came to be. Prior to that, there were people that followed the way. But it was at Antioch that people became known as Christians. So, our first reading is from Acts 13, 1. Let's pray. Lord, would you open your word to us in the various readings we encounter today? May you show us more than what we've seen before, and may you guide our hearts to be influenced by you and to be influencers for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, Saul whom we know as Paul. So you see in there Barnabas and Saul, Paul, but these other names that are like, well, who are they? And there's this one name there, all those names we could read over, but there's this one name, Menaean, that Luke challenges us not to read past. Now, I imagine for the early church, anybody who got the chance to read the Acts of the Apostles read through those names and probably knew most, if not all of them. Kind of like when we open a yearbook and, and look back and we're familiar with the names. But if you were to look at my yearbook, you might not know any of them. In the same way, we're looking later at these names we don't know, but Luke feels it important enough to lay before us additional information. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the same Herod that interacts later with Paul. This Herod has control of much of the area. And what we're being told is that Menaean grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. We know that Herod the Tetrarch's early years actually were back in Rome. So Menaean was in a place and in a position, probably was well-to-do as far as families go in the Roman system, that he had a lot of influence. And yet, we don't know his story, but somewhere along the line, Jesus got a hold of him, such that now he's among the prophets and teachers no longer marching with Herod, but with the prophets and teachers teaching the early church. It's believed that Luke, the writer of Acts, and obviously the writer of the Gospel of Luke, got a lot of his additional information, insider information, it seems to be, about 
what happened on, in Herod's inner circles that probably got a lot of that information from Manan. So that's the first person of influence. Interesting to look at, kind of a curiosity of sorts, if anything else. The next one is similar, also attached in a way to the household of Herod the Tetrarch. The next one is in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This time, we're going to deal with someone else. Soon afterward, he went on, that is Jesus, went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, you probably get where this is going, who we're going to talk about, but it's Joanna. We often think about the disciples, the 12 following Jesus, but there are other points where he sends out 70, and we often hear about crowds following with him, as well as we're told that there were women who were with and followed and were part of that group. There's a popular series called The Chosen that's out now. Maybe some of you have seen it. And they're working on how did we work in the Mary Magdalene's and the Joanna's and Mary, the mother of Jesus, et cetera, that they seem to be part of this traveling band. And then there's those questions that we've all had, right? When Jesus says to James and John early on, when they're fishing on the seaside of Galilee, he says, follow me, and they just abandon their nets, and they abandon their father. In other words, the family business, and they follow Jesus. And, and it seems amazing to just stop and drop everything and follow Jesus, but we immediately have a practical question, don't we? That works for a day or two, Right? But even my college-age son eventually calls and says, I need money, right? That's not the bust on him. None of you have ever had a child say, I need money? No, we, we have the practical realities of life. We have the Mary and Martha story, the tension of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha is busy in the kitchen getting everything prepared, being the hostess and making sure everything's taken care of. And she eventually bursts in like, Lord, tell my sister Mary to come help me. There's the practical realities of life. This traveling band, how do they exist? Where does the food come from? The five loaves and two fish being feeding 5,000 people would not have been much of a miracle if it was happening every day and Jesus was providing manna from heaven for the disciples every day. There are practical questions that we obviously have that if we no longer ask, our children do. Where did they live? How were they fed? And one of the things we're seeing is someone like Joanna, who's married to Cusa, who is Herod the Tetrarch's household manager. In other words, 
a chief steward, keeping track and watching over everything in the king's, well, he's not quite a king, but this ruler's household. The opulence with which he lived, the circles in which they walked, and yet somehow Joanna discovers this Jesus, that he's more than just a simple rabbi or some wandering teacher. And so the suspicion among scholars is that Joanna more than likely helped contribute and underwrite and support that that household. Some have even postulated that the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter have a, a, there's a story about a man whose son is, is dying and, and calls for Jesus to come and help. Some have even wondered if that could not have been Cusa himself. We don't know. But the truth is that Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, they can't give us all the information, all the backstory, but they tell us some particular parts that help us get a window into what was happening in their world. And Joanna was certainly a person of influence. But her greatest influence came that day when she was there at the empty tomb and became one of the first witnesses to the resurrection. You can see very clearly that Menaean and Joanna are examples about how the early Christian church didn't just disseminate among the poor and the underclass, but was also reaching the highest levels. That there were those who were in position of dramatic influence that became followers of Jesus. We don't know all their story is. We don't know how much they had to abandon and leave behind, but we can see their influence. And we can see that they very well walked in a manner of life that was more than many of us will ever experience. But they're a good lead-in to one more person. And unfortunately, this person, we don't know his name. It's not shared with us. We, we don't get to hear what he was called, so we are left more by a description of who he was, and we come across him in the latter part of the book of Acts. And like so many that are minor characters, we come across him because he's part of a larger story concerning Paul. Paul, who has now journeyed through much of the known world uh, teaching and, and telling people about Jesus has now decided to go back to Jerusalem. There's been warnings along the way by prophets and others that if he goes back, that it won't be good for him, that he'll be arrested. And there are a whole bunch of fellow believers who don't want him to go. But he insists that he'll go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he encounters enormous conflict. You know, we right now live in a world 
full of conflict, disagreement. Some of us may worry about what we're sending our graduates into. The world and all the debates that exist, we wonder what they'll be influenced by. Some of the major conflicts in our country right now are around issues of human sexuality, and we worry about all that and where people will side. But I want you to know this morning that from the very beginning, the Church of Jesus Christ has been introducing the greatest conflict of all, that our children are already armed with the most conflicting thing that anyone can have, and that is the question about whether Jesus is Lord or not. When Paul went back to Jerusalem, the Jews, the leaders, James and others met with him and said, look, there's a concern. We know you still follow the ways of Moses. We know you still behave and keep the rules of the law. But there's a whole bunch of other believers in Jesus who follow the rules of the law, who believe that you've been teaching others to abandon all that and not do any of that. So they formulate a plan. The plan is that Paul will shave his head, he'll take the right of a Nazarite, and he'll, for seven days, and he'll also pay for the expenses of four others. And all this is to tell you that they have a plan that will show that he is still dedicated to the ways of his people as a follower of Jesus Christ all the while. What they didn't plan for they had a controversy within their own Christian faith. What they didn't plan for is they didn't plan for those Jews who didn't believe the Messiah had yet come, that Jesus was Lord. And so when Paul went into the temple, the center of the Jewish world, controversy erupted. And it was so violent that the Roman fortress attached to the side of the temple immediately sent down all of its soldiers to get control of the situation. You see, if someone defiled the temple, the Jews were allowed to put that person to death immediately. And some historians argue and some historical things suggest that even a Roman who entered into the temple and defiled it could be killed immediately. So Rome is prepared for controversy. It's a heightened time. And they see a controversy start up. And so they come down and they get Paul. And they don't know what's going on, but they know they got to separate people. And as they're trying to remove him out, as they're trying to climb back up the steps into the fortress, Paul begs, can I please just say something? And he convinces the leader of the Roman soldiers, a tribune, to allow him to speak. And then he turns to his own people and he speaks in Hebrew and he quiets them down. And he begins to tell his story about how he is a Jew of Jews, how he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he goes on and then he gets to the latter part of his discussion 
that of being a follower of Jesus. And everything whips up again, and they remove, Paul, Paul is removed by the Romans into the fortress, and the tribune did in classic, the leader, the Roman leader did in classic way of trying to figure out what's going on. What they did back then is they said, let's have him flogged, and then we'll know what's going on. He'll tell us the truth after he's beaten up a little. They go to do that, and Paul has learned from the past. He's a Roman citizen. He said, are you really going to flog me have I, and I've not been tried at all? Everything stops. And we find that even the tribune, who's in charge of 600-plus soldiers, in charge of the whole fortress, has had to buy his Roman citizenship. But Paul has it by birth. This is the background. This is the conflict into which we read our next passage. The Jews are so worked up. They want Paul dead, and yet the Romans have him, and yet the Romans don't really want to have him, but they can't release him. They don't know what to do. He's kind of under a house arrest. There's this tension that exists, and into this story we find our next person. Acts 23, verse 12. When it was day... The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, that Roman leader, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. In other words, they're going to kill him along the way. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions, he's a Roman leader of a hundred, and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire some, somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he, that is the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea as at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. I know in many ways this might feel like a history lesson, but there's something more going on. This young man, and oh, he was young. Every indication was that he was young. This young man, whose name we don't even know, enters into a position of influence that changes the course of everything. Now think about what he had to do. He himself was a Jew. He lived in the tension and cultural crisis that existed of people who believed that the Messiah had come and people who did not believe. He likely had family members on both sides of that equation. How else could he have come into the information of 40 or more that have bound themselves by an oath to not eat or drink and that they've set up an ambush? How does a kid like that come aware of that kind of information? And what do you do with information like that once you have it? There are times where each of us become aware of something that we realize is significant, but we don't know whether or not to act. We hope that maybe somebody else will act, that somebody else will step forward, because we know to step forward puts us into the fray, puts us into the crisis, challenges us to suddenly be part of the story rather than to watch the story play out. The greatest challenge for each of our young people who leave today is the challenge that faces us each and every day, and that is the challenge of whether we follow Christ or not. Will we step up and follow him, or will we sit back and watch the story unfold? This young man chose to go to the Roman fortress to somehow gain access to his uncle and to be able to share with his uncle what's going on. Now, you may say, well, that, he had all personal family interests. Okay, probably true. But by doing what he's doing, someone will find out. He's completely at risk. And he steps in, and he tells Paul, and then Paul says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to tell it up the chain. And he gets a centurion. Now, this isn't just a regular Roman soldier. This is someone who's in charge of a hundred other soldiers. And Paul now has a relationship where he can summon a centurion to go take this young lad all the way up to military chain. And there he is before the most powerful person in that area. And the power differential could not be more stated such that the tribune takes the young boy by the hand and goes over privately so that no one can overhear and says, what is it you have to tell me? The information that is given him is enough that you cannot lose sight of the action he takes. He empties out that fortress by over half of its personnel. Sends 200 troops, what, 70 cavalry and others. He prepares a late night exit for Paul to be delivered to another area so that he cannot be taken. 
the fortress and the Roman presence exists to keep the Jews from uprising, and he knows he has an uprising right on his doorstep. And so he tries to get Paul out of there in the middle of the night, all because one young man chose to speak up. And remember what he was told by the tribune? Tell no one that you told me these things. And yet you all now know. And why do you know? Because Paul was delivered out of the hands of those who were going to ambush him. And through the years, he went up through the chain and was sent all the way to Rome as he could appeal to the emperor because of his citizenship. And by doing that, he ends up in Rome and writes multiple letters that we now have in the New Testament. All of that takes place because this young man spoke up. And where we don't even know his name, he has no position. The only thing we know is he was related to Paul. He had the ability because he was willing to go and willing to speak up. He had the ability to change not just the life and events of Paul's life, but the events of the whole Christian church, including us today. So anytime any one of us is left with that empty feeling that we don't matter, that we're nobody, that we're not as good as someone else, that we don't know as much as someone else, that we're not in that position, never, ever keep that thought. Because the scriptures are full of God using a whole bunch of nobodies to do extraordinary things. Our journey to Pentecost is not about our ability. It's what God is going to do through the Spirit and how he moves common people to do extraordinary things in the name of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, may we be guided and may we be strengthened by your Spirit. May we have the courage to speak into controversy and struggle with words of love and encouragement and words of truth. Help us, O oh Lord, to follow you, to recognize that you are the greatest controversy of all. Whether people are willing to believe in you and whether they are willing to follow you. In short, the belief of you as Lord and Savior. And we know that belief changes the world. Help us, Lord, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are called to go, to go out and make disciples. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace. Amen. Amen.